Hello and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. It's November 17th and this is Off Chain, your weekly recap of the biggest stories in Web3. I'm Matthew Hausbarby and as always, I'm here with Austin Knight. How are you doing, Austin? Doing well, Matt. We've got a lot to talk about today. To kick it off, I'm going to hit you with two stats, okay? Let's do it. The first one is a couple days ago was Ledger's biggest sales day ever. And on that, that same day, yes, <laughs> on that same day, this is, this is the second stat, more Mercedes G-Wagons were listed on AutoTrader than any other time in history. Guilty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not quite sold the Lambo yet, but you know, uh, <laughs> that is, uh, I feel like that, that that's two great stats. Two great stats. Yeah. I mean, crypto's hurting. Uh, but it has been uh, a boom for some other projects in the space as well. I think anything focused on like self custody has done really well. I was um, I was at Token Twenty Forty Nine last week, as I think we mentioned in the last episode, and I got a chance to chat with the CEO of Trust Wallet. Who, uh, she's excellent, uh, really, really great individual. Had some great conversations, but I was like, oh, haven't really checked out trust wallet in a little while and guess I'm looking at like different wallet solutions. And then I looked on CoinGecko and it was just like trust wallets native token was just like through the absolute roof because yeah, like people are much more focused on the, the, the narrative that I guess we heard back in 2018 when we were covering a lot of this, which is get off centralized exchanges. Um, well, it feels yeah. like last week, at least, you know, we were, our discussion when we went deep dive into the FTX situation was very much a let's discuss the chaos that is unfolding right now. And I think today it's going to be let's dig into the aftermath of this, the contagion, and starting to pick up some of the pieces and see where we're at, which is still an ongoing situation. And I think we're going to have a, a discussion in a bit more detail about, you know, what what have we taken away from this and where do we go from here? But lots to dig into today. So why don't we kick things off uh, with with our first kind of update on the, the situation with FTX. Let's begin with where we left off in our last episode about a week ago. So FTX and Alameda Research are insolvent and have filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. If you're not familiar with what FTX and Alameda Research are, FTX was the world's second largest crypto exchange, and Alameda Research was an investment arm uh, that was under the same umbrella as FTX, but was supposed to be operating independently. It turned out that user funds were being exchanged between the two and being used at, to prop up investments from FTX in Alameda Research. And it created a huge $8 billion plus hole uh, on their balance sheet and over $650 million personally owed by SBF, Sam Bakeman-Fried, the founder of FTX and Alameda, and, and just in case, and just in case anyone n needed to understand, an eight billion hole and six hundred fifty million being personally owed, uh, it, it, not a good thing. Not a good thing here. Pretty bad. <laughs> Pretty bad. Just want to outline that one. Not not a yeah, good thing yeah. to have. No. Thank you. Thank you for the additional detail there, Matt. I almost missed that. <laughs> that's what I'm. That's what I'm here for, Austin. You know. Yeah. So what does this mean? It means that billions of dollars in user funds were locked up in FTX and FTX US. Now, that one's a little bit new from the last mm -hmm. time that we spoke. Of course, that came out a few hours after uh, our, our episode aired. And part of the result of this was that FTT, the native token of FTX, was heading towards zero. I checked this morning. I think it's somewhere around like $1.30, $1.40. Um, so very, very down from its highs, uh, you'll you'll recall, you know, just a week and a half ago, Caroline, the the CEO of Alameda, was offering to buy all of Binance's FTT tokens at a discounted price of twenty two dollars. So, 
really, really tough times in the crypto space. And when we mentioned billions of dollars in user funds locked up that were misappropriated as part of this, these are real people, individuals. We've seen, I mean, Matt, you and I have seen so many stories over the course of the past couple of weeks of people that have lost their entire life savings, people that had millions of dollars in some cases tied up in FTX that they can't get to. I was in a a really interesting um, Twitter spaces event where they, they just had people coming up one after the other, sharing their story of what has happened to them. One guy, he's 19 years old. He started with a couple hundred bucks from his, uh, you know, hourly job. He turned it into $200,000, which is really impressive. Um, Yeah. And he lost a hundred percent of it. He, He had kept it all on FTX. So uh, you know, somebody like that is very smart and capable. He's going to be able to do it again. He's young, obviously, uh, but that 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 doesn't make this okay. Uh, these are real people's lives that have been absolutely destroyed. I mean, I I heard about uh, some someone here in Austin um, that literally, like, he's having to sell his house. And he's worried that he could have to, that he could lose his visa and have to move his family back to India um, because of of how the fact that he's lost all of his funds through. It's uh, it's it's truly awful, right? And you know, and I think in this, uh, I think this is where it's a bit different from the the well, it's obviously incredibly different from the lunar crash. But I think like a lot of people looked at it and they were like, why did these people hold so much in this like? super speculative like poorly designed token it's like okay hindsight's 2020 but you know this this is the second largest crypto exchange well even in the narrative of like don't keep your funds in a centralized exchange oh man fdx was like up there along with like coinbase where it was just a bit like you know yeah but you know this almost feels you can forgive people for thinking this feels a little bit better than me kind of managing this myself if they don't feel comfortable with it and we've seen that yeah and we've seen that with everything from like what you were talking about individuals through to literally like whole hedge funds where we've seen people come out and like hey we have some bad news we held a significant portion of our funds on ftx which was where we gained our crypto exposure and yeah we're we're in trouble um and i i listened to an episode over the weekend of the Up Only podcast where they had an FTX employee on. And, you know, I think it's got to be really rough times to be an FTX employee. And it's easy for people, like, to just look on the outside and probably go, what the hell are you talking about, Matt? Like, you know, they're the problem. Well, no. Like, 99% of the employees are not going to have any kind of level exposure or knowledge of, like, what was going on here. And the worst thing about this is you think about, if you're an FTX employee... And you were like working there as like, I don't know, developer, you're whatever, like operations manager, marketing manager, whatever it was. And you were getting paid, clearly, you'll be getting paid in probably like some FTT tokens and most, just most of the activity you probably did in crypto, you did on FTX. It was like, you know, I work here, I I like this product. It it was a great product. Um, And they probably held the majority of it all in the exchange. And yeah, that's, that is not good uh, for for them. And they've also got the enormous reputational burden that now they're going to face alongside this. But yeah, it's not good. As, is, is, yeah, yeah, a lot of collateral damage here. Absolutely. And to to your point, Matt, I mean, we always say not, not your keys, not your crypto. I get it. Uh, I think that this is a case where you can't really blame the people that... No had their money on the exchange and lost it. Uh, For example, you know, you mentioned like entire hedge funds are being taken out by this. They had kept their crypto on FTX as well. Okay. Not their keys, not their crypto. Well, these are hedge funds that that are super sophisticated and felt confident enough to keep their crypto on FTX. If if it can happen to a hedge fund, uh, it's excusable Mm -hmm. that it happened to, you know, your next door neighbor. I mean, another, there's so many examples like this, but for example, uh, Sequoia Capital, wh- one of the most successful VC firms in history, literally, they have investments representing trillions of dollars in market cap, invested hundreds of millions of dollars in FTX, and they've lost out from this. Yep. Okay. So, and I, I would actually say, I think you could even 
pass this all the way down to the influencers that were confident in FTX. Of course, there are plenty of influencers that are bad actors in our space, but this is not the hill to die on with the influencers. I think that people can get a pass on this one. Yeah, this isn't Um, them pushing the the dog coins and food coins of like the space. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty legit. But yeah, I'm sure... um, all of the the many high profile celebrity endorsements and sponsorships I'm yeah, pretty they're gonna, oh. yeah they're gonna feel pretty pretty silly now but hindsight's 2020 um so we'll we'll see yeah so where are we now okay shortly after our episode aired the new york times published a puff piece on sbf and this was really weird they it was were very starting strange. to yeah, yeah. I mean, the, obviously, Twitter over over the course of the last couple of weeks has been really interesting, and this and and New York Times piece has been a huge uh, point of focus as to how they were sort of starting to frame this as a mistake, as you know, FTX and SBF they grew too big. Uh, it, he was an honest and humble person, and uh, that this was just the, the result of bad accounting and and a bad rival like CZ. I, I can't believe that. And, uh, and they were even going so far as to say that SBF had simply taken on too much, and the venture stuff distracted him. Like that is a very interesting way to describe the person who committed the largest financial fraud in history, literally stealing billions of dollars from individuals and institutions alike that most likely will never be recovered. We live, this whole space lives in a consistent state of Stockholm syndrome, in in, in my opinion. It's just, it's inconceivable to me how like time and time again, like there will be another SBF, right? And we will be talking about it on this podcast in a few years time and the next big thing. And until something systemically changes, which I know we're going to talk a little bit about soon, but you know, it's, it, history will continue to repeat itself. I, I, on the CZ piece in particular, um, the, uh, the, the founder and CEO of Binance, I've heard so many takes where it's like, well, you know, CZ got what he wanted. His master plan is like done. This is CZ's fault. It's like, no, I'm sorry. Like dumping, well, uh, announcing that you're going to start unwinding a 600 million position in FTT, that shouldn't collapse the second largest exchange in the world. Like, you know, the, the problem here lies on SBF. I personally kind of feel like the I'm kind of glad that this happened now versus later because I think if SBF had managed to patch up this hole, yeah, like he in his mind he's invincible at this point, and that the it, the stakes only get higher. Someone like this continues to to do this kind of activity. They don't patch this up and go, "Whew, that was that was a close uh, close one. Let's just uh operate like, you know, stand-up individuals from now on." <laughs> you know, it, it, <laughs> it they continue down this path. Yeah, and uh, here here's the thing with that. CZ just just because SBF is the villain doesn't make CZ the hero, okay? Yeah. So I, I think that we, we shouldn't misconstrue this to say like, oh, now our hero is CZ. No, that's the whole problem, that we keep mm-hmm. treating these people like they're heroes. Uh, with that said, the New York Times is, isn't doing anything but working against this space in that way by continuing to prop up the person who committed the fraud. And then like weirdly attacking the person who, again, CZ is not a hero, but is not responsible for any of this. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, there there are strategic, uh, you know, fights and moves that, that you could kind of pull out of how all of this unfolded, but it doesn't change the fact that there was gross negligence and fraud that, that caused this collapse. And it was nothing other than that, that, that caused it. That's really the problem here. And if you go into the New York times piece on SPF, there was this really interesting tweet from Trung Fan who, who said, okay, Excel- let's do excellent a Twitter, little- excellent Twitter account, by the way. Yeah. Trung is just yeah. like the best. Yeah, really. Uh, and he was like, okay, let's go ahead and just do a word count here. So fraud mentioned zero times in the New York times, Peace. Enron, zero. Crime, zero. Illiquid, 
not even really that controversial of a term. In fact, it's pretty much just factual. (laughs) Mentioned zero times. Stolen, zero. Hidden, zero. Criminal, zero. Backdoor, zero. He's getting sleep. Mentioned once. (laughs) (laughs) It's like in the opening paragraph, isn't it? I absolutely love that. When I read it, I was like... I can't even believe that. The, so when I read that first piece, or I, I I can't remember the exact line, but they basically say something along the lines of like, "Oh, you you think he's going to be um, not sleeping at all?" But uh, he said, "Didn't quote." It's like, in fact, I'm actually getting some sleep, or something along those lines, right? I thought they were about to just tear into him, and then it's just like, "Oh, I guess he's a good guy, doing what he can to write this, uh, get this situation back on track," and it's just not it's just unhelpful i i think at this point it it really is and of course they they go on um they interviewed the the team's in-house coach who talked about how humble and frugal sam was meanwhile he said in in previous articles that he can't really cook that the team owns multiple luxury apartments in albany which is a private bahamas resort we're talking about like 30 million dollars plus in fact sam literally just listed his place in the bahamas for 39 and a half million dollars uh and this is just so funny to me because it it makes me think back to that video um of him talking about how he drives a toyota corolla still he he parks it he parks it inside his super yacht uh, so that it can't be seen <laughs> by the rest of the public, uh, or it's just on his like giant like airship uh, that he that he has. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. There was um, y- you can actually find the listing of his penthouse. It's called the Orchid in Albany um, online. I, I bet it's the, horrible, the... isn't it? I bet it's just <laughs> oh really gosh. horrible. Just to, and it's just derelict. It's ramen everywhere uh, for us. <laughs> just... <laughs> yeah, it's a, million. It's Sounds a, nice. yeah, it's a beautiful place, actually. Um, and you contrast that with, you know, that that uh, charity video where he was so humble about his Toyota Corolla and saying he lived a modest lifestyle all with his effective altruism. Oh, yeah. Uh, work. And uh, it doesn't it, it, it paints a much clearer picture now. Another thing to keep in mind is FTX had some huge sponsorships. I, I talked all the time about how they were on Lewis Hamilton's F1 car. Yeah. I mean, even more famously, they were they were on top of the uh, the Miami Heat Stadium. Miami like Heat, they literally yeah. took over. They, they bought the full stadium. naming. They, they bought the full naming. Yeah. Right. See, I was watching the F1 at the weekend and uh, I noticed on the Mercedes team, FTX was not on there, which was actually interesting. I know. Um, yeah, so, yeah yeah i was looking for that i was like Are yeah. still gonna happen? <laughs> yeah. but um th- there was even this this funny uh photo that was being circulated around a few days ago of a crew on top of the ftx arena removing the ftx logo from it so <laughs> did, did you did I you guess... hear that what they were so they were building uh so they have this like office space in um uh Nassau, the resort in bahamas and that's where they're located, like HQ is now. And they were in the middle of this enormous, like yeah. multi, multi-million uh, like piece of real estate um, to build an even bigger office. And the whole building was going to be in the giant shape of an F for FTX. Yeah. I just find it hilarious that it was just a big F, though, in, in, <laughs> in all of this. Um, but it, it was going to be enormous. I think they were like midway through that uh, at the moment. Yeah. Okay, so just back to the New York Times piece. To close this out, literally, I haven't seen an article this positive about the New York in the New York Times about tech in a decade. In fact, I believe that the New York Times ha- for years has had an explicit policy that they are not positive about tech because they view it as a threat to democracy and all of these things. Mm-hmm. And then they choose to write the first positive tech article in years in the better part of a decade about the guy who unambiguously stole billions of dollars from people sounds good so yeah. many yeah <laughs> it's just it's it's so bizarre uh and i i saw this tweet from brian armstrong um who is the uh the, the ceo of coinbase, coinbase and i thought yeah. that it, it really uh summarized this pretty well he said okay you can look at what the New York Times is doing. Um, they, they're they writing puff pieces about a criminal 
Meanwhile, Twitter has broken just about every piece of this FTX story using blockchain analytics. This feels like a turning point for citizen journalism and a loss of trust in the mainstream media. And I, I think that that's, to me, that just shows how out of touch the New York, New York Times was on this one. This is a huge story. This isn't something that you can just pad down and, and memory hole. At least I hope not, no. because it, it would be a, a huge atrocity if that happened. Um, it's unbelievable to, to me to see to see the way that they covered this. And I also thought it was so funny in the article itself, SBF mentioned a video game called Storybook Brawl. It turns out FTX actually owns that they game. Own that. Yep. <laughs> it's just like, yes, you just got to sometimes step back and just respect the hustle, right? Like you are yeah. enemy number one in a piece talking about how you've literally crashed the entire industry, but you just cannot help that simple plug for the game that you own. It's unbelievable. Um, yeah, but yeah, it really is. <laughs> We're going to come back to that. Yes, we will come back to the New York Times piece and the media coverage later. But what else has happened since our last episode? So right around the night of our, our episode airing, the remaining wallets on FTX were hacked and user balances on the exchange were set to zero. So what happened here is that somebody, we didn't totally know who, but it had to be someone with pretty extensive access at the highest levels was mm -hmm. going in and draining these wallets. They walked away with more than $400 million in yep. remaining assets. And at the same time, an update to the app was published that it was thought could have potentially contained spyware. This was never confirmed. I, I would um, actually just use this, this opportunity for anyone that does have the FTX app still on their phone. Just, I would just recommend immediately deleting the app. Um, yeah. just to play it safe uh, at, at this point. Yeah. If you recall last week, we mentioned that, you know, at the time of our episode, all of the insolvency was focused on FTX International. And there were claims that it hadn't spread over to FTX US because of the way that it was regulated. Of course, since then, FTX US has collapsed and we advised you all, it's probably better to just take your money off of FTX US and put it into cold storage. Or really, if you have any crypto on an exchange, doesn't matter what the exchange is, probably the safe thing to do right now is to take it off the exchange and put it into cold storage. Uh, mm -hmm. Same thing with the FTX app. Just as a precautionary measure, don't open it, don't play around in it, delete it off your phone. You're not going to need it again in the future anyway. No. Yeah, we can guarantee you, we can definitely guarantee you of that. What I thought was interesting about this hack really, real quick is, <clears throat> so there's no way on earth that someone is going to be able to actually get walk away with this 400 million. Um, it's probably the most watched wallet um, <clears throat> of any wallet outside of maybe the original like Satoshi wallet. I, I just can't see how they'll ever get this out. Even at that size, I mean, I don't even know if you could even get that through something like Tornado Cash kind of now. And even yeah. then the size that you'd be able to push, because I know the majority of like liquidity on Tornado Cash has like been destroyed since the the um, sanction stuff. But <clears throat> so even in that case, you've got to feel like this is much more about like Eva making some kind of statement or it's like it, there's just a different motive here that i can't quite get my head around right now but it's it's clearly not about getting these funds at least that's yeah my i mean i know there's a lot of speculation that this this could be a disgruntled employee an amateur that doesn't totally know what they're doing whatever it mm. is the person that drained that money from ftx they're now the 35th largest holder of eth with like oh, roughly $300 million worth of ETH alone. Um, it, it's going to be near impossible to withdraw that anywhere. But what if they chose to manipulate markets with it? I mean, yeah. being the 35th largest holder, you've got some serious weight that you can throw around. It, you're right, Matt. There is going to be a lot of attention paid to this wallet and scrutiny placed on it. To this date, and as of recording, this is November 17th, FTX has not yet verified who is in possession of these assets or how they obtained access to them. But the hacker does continue to access them and swap them around on the chain. So yeah, I mean, a lot to keep an eye on there. You, this is a very powerful tool for manipulating markets. You set up short positions in, in other spots mm -hmm. and you've got an armory to then 
yeah, like move markets in a real easy way, even on like across all of DeFi. Um, it's it's going to be pretty simple to to do that. Yeah. Yeah, not good. We're going to just find out that it's Avi Eisenberg again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Our favorite, favorite guy would not even surprise me. This is all part of his uh, shorting tether play. um, Yeah. Which, you know, like at that point, I'd be like, okay, now I just have to take my hat off to this absolute lunatic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So following this, things went pretty quiet. And it wasn't until November 13th that we had any real updates again. And this, this time it was from SBF himself. And oh, he simply tweeted, <laughs> yeah. what? Like one, what, right? And then over the course of the next couple of days, he tweeted out letter by letter, the word happened at, at like sporadic intervals, seemed to be just kind of playing a game with his followers. There was a lot of speculation around this. Like, was this a dead man's switch? Yeah. Like may- maybe, you know, there were attempts to to kill him. And if you haven't looked into what a dead man switch is because I, I hadn't heard of this before this speculation. Just check out the Wikipedia article. It's really fascinating. Basically, mm-hmm. this would have been a way to, you know, indicate that he's still alive. And still alive, if yeah. he stopped tweeting, then, you know, something like it would maybe set off a bunch of blackmail that would come out or it would crash additional crypto or something like that. Um, another uh, speculation was that uh, what he was doing is each time he tweeted, he was deleting another tweet because he's deleted a ton of tweets over the course of the past couple of weeks, you know, presumably to uh, like prevent himself from being incriminated from really, really, uh, you know, legally implicating stuff that he said in the past and that he was like tweeting once and then deleting a tweet at the same time so that those tweet tracking bots wouldn't pick up on it. Theoretically, th- this could be true, but it, it, that it kind of shook out to where that wasn't it's just really too dumb, the case. isn't it? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. there's no way that like, if, if like Twitter would be able to figure this out, it's not, not difficult. This is the beauty of the exactly. machine, right? And like the internet archive. Yeah. So then it turns out and in his interviews that he's been doing, really what he was doing is just, quote, improvising, (laughs) effectively screwing with everybody that was trying to figure out what was going on at FTX. This is the moment when I was like, oh, no, like he's a sociopath. Like this is crazy that you're acting this way. And yeah, the the rest of that thread is just his tone. It's just so out of touch with reality. Um, I think we, we were chatting earlier, right? Like there was that photo of him just in a grocery. I mean, we'll see if that's definitely true, but looked at like just in a grocery store in the Bahamas, no security around him, nothing. Uh, yeah. I don't like know. Like texting what... somebody on his phone. Yeah, Probably yeah. that Vox reporter. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so of course, this causes pretty significant backlash from users, former teammates, and he stopped doing this, and then began what I think could only be described as a written apology tour. I mean, it was gross. Uh, Mm -hmm. First, he started making the claim that actually everything was solvent as of November 7th, and really what what he was doing is uh, that, you know, the, the the $10 billion hole was actually created between November 7th and the point of the bankruptcy. Um, but the thing is, this uh, unlike centralized exchanges, blockchains keep really strong records that allow us to go back and validate this. And the data, in fact, shows how much FTX held prior to the bank run. Uh, and it was insufficient amounts to cover user deposits. So this was yeah. a lie. Uh, it made me think of that Mari Povich uh, meme that, that's like, and the lie detector determined that <laughs> that was a lie. <laughs> and this just keeps happening over and over and over again with FTX and SBF. He goes on to claim after that, that, oh, we, we just took on too much leverage. Um, yeah, around the, thir- the leverage part. Like, ah. it, well, it, it, the, the, you know, the original kind of tweet that thread that he sent out like last week where he was basically like, you know, um, what I originally thought is that we had zero uh, X leverage. And what we actually had was, I think he said like 1.8 X leverage. Like what he's saying there is not just, oh, there was more leverage than we thought. What he's saying there is, I thought we literally had no leverage at all. And there was actually a lot of leverage. That's like the difference between those two things is 
pretty significant and pretty obvious. So it's just unbelievable. A lot of this stuff, like like we've been saying, like the math doesn't add up here, right? It, the math does not add up at all. He kept coming out with claim after claim after claim. None of the math added up on it. It's obvious that you cannot trust what he's saying here. And it was really funny. I was in a, a Twitter spaces over the weekend uh, with Kim.com and, and several other people. And it this was like while uh, these articles were coming out and SBF was tweeting. And literally, he was admitting to misappropriating users' funds. Like, mm-hmm. just straight up saying, yeah, you know, we, we misappropriated users' funds, but, like, you know, we were, we were trying to do something good here, and it wasn't totally my fault. Like, it was the, the fault of the other executives in FTX throwing them under the bus. Yeah. And when this is all coming out, Kim.com just unmutes, and he says, my only thought here is, who the hell is his legal team because yeah. they're absolutely terrible. All oh. he's doing is incriminating himself. <laughs> it's it's bizarre to me that he would send a single tweet. Like, yeah. you know, like any, I mean, is it is there even any point in comparing to a rational person? But, you know, any like rational person in this decision would be like, okay, time to go silent, get legal counsel around me, irrespective of like what you've done. Like, let's say in this bizarre fantasy world that it was all just a mistake. They didn't misappropriate user funds, blah, blah, blah. That isn't the case. Even then, don't say anything. Get legal counsel. Have like only official announcements go out that are written by a crisis management team. Like, it's just so strange that this has transpired in the way that it is. Yeah, it's it's really incredible. And all the while that this is happening, he's giving another interview to Vox via uh, DMs on Twitter saying that all his ethics and, and altruism was really just PR. And he was totally focused on, on the trading. And in that same interview, he blatantly admits, as I said, that he stole user funds, lending them to Alameda because, quote, sometimes life creeps on you. <laughs> oh, he also, this is one of my favorite things. He said it was factually correct when he said that FTX doesn't invest your assets because technically it was Alameda doing the <laughs> investing. <laughs> so, yeah. That's got, that has got me. Oh, man. Oh, this is brilliant. You know, you, you, <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah. Uh, this, this, this Vox article is in, incredible. And uh, so, you know, in, uh, in Sam's view, even though it was theft, and a violation of their own terms of service, it was fine because other people were doing it, and he continues to claim that it was just messy accounting, despite colleagues confirming he expressly programmed a backdoor to enable him to do this. And despite all of this, stealing user funds, blaming other founders, coding a backdoor, all, all of this stuff, not caring about the ethics of it all, he still thinks, and this is what he's on a campaign to do right now, that he can raise over $8 billion in two weeks because, quote, he was one of the world's greatest fundraisers. This is the, um, I think, one of the wildest parts to me is that I still believe he can probably pull it off. There is enough dumb money out there that will do this. I, I, it, I know mm-hmm. it sounds absolutely bizarre to me, and I would definitely not hold out any level of hope for this, but if someone said to me, hey, like, you know, gun to your head, do you think that uh, he's going to do it or not? I'd be like, I, I don't know. I would certainly wouldn't bank my life on him not doing it. It's um, it's bizarre. And it, it, it's just very strange that this is even like the number one priority right now. But yeah. Yeah, it really care. is. But I, I think you're totally right, Matt. Um, I There was uh, a couple days ago. Uh, Kevin O'Leary went on crypto banter and I was watching it live and uh, <laughs> he was asked, would you back SBF again if you had the opportunity to after he's lost like millions of dollars a- a- in as part of this? Um, and it was it was really interesting. He hesitated and hesitated and hesitated. And then finally he said, yeah, you know, I, I think I would um, I think I would back him again. And this and, is the problem. This is the problem. And as I continue to think about this, I know we were talking about this over the course of the past couple of days. If I had to guess, I would say Sam's probably going to get away with this. Um, 
there's a few reasons for this. One of which is the puff pieces in the New York Times and Vox, the one we were just talking about, and even Reuters. Uh, Reuters had a headline that said, quote, SBF did the financial system a favor. And to me, these are signals that somewhere in the media establishment, they're being told, okay, we need to control the narrative on this a little bit. We have spoken previously about how Sam has deep political connections. Um, There's a bunch of information coming out about even like his parents and um, their sort of ties through Stanford to like the SEC, to political action committees. Obviously, Sam was the second largest donor to the Democrat Party during Joe Biden's campaign and during our midterm elections. His brother um, had... interesting sort of involvements with the the SEC. Um, Caroline, the, the CEO of uh, Alameda, Alameda, her dad was, yeah, previously Gensler, the chair of the SEC's boss. There's like this weird sort of web of connections here. And actually in that same interview uh, on Crypto Banter, Kevin O'Leary um, said when he was talking about investing in FTX, he said, quote, the largest financial global institutions in the world were very comfortable to invest in FTX at a $32 billion valuation. Yes, we have egg on our faces, but we met the team. We met the parents. We met Sam. Mm. And for all the negative things being said about him, I don't know of a more productive and efficient and disciplined for a while anyways, trader of crypto. We met the parents. Yeah. What? It's a strange one, isn't it? You know, it's, it really is. It, and then, uh, you know, uh, on top of this, you have even people like Vitalik saying kind of apologetic things on his behalf. And then let's go ahead and like take a step back here. What happened to Doquan? What happened to Zusu? What happened to Kyle Davies? Mm-hmm. They're all they're all free. In fact, they're on a comeback tour right now for oh, the most part, which th- is ridiculous. This is the thing that's killing me, especially like Suzu, you know, it, it, like... He is just on a. He's he's back on Twitter as if he's in his heyday of popularity. It's, it's it, this this stuff drives me. It drives me crazy, and I think this is one of the big problems that that we have in the space right now. It's, you know, I <clears throat> I know we were going to talk about this right, but it's like I I published a a, a short essay like a couple of days ago that. Where, where I kind of talk about this like cult problem in, in mm-hmm. crypto. And it's like we're in Groundhog Day where we see like time and time again, and we have these like cult-like personalities that form in the crypto space. They gather these huge followings. They control large influence, outsized influence, not just in the social sphere, but on a financial level as well, which just further deepens the roots of influence and kind of control that sets in when you not only control and can influence the way people think, but have a enormous stake in their future finances. You know, they, they promise these huge lofty goals and then they deceive all of the people that put them in that position in the very beginning. And it's, Difficult to watch this time and time again, sometimes being personally involved as collateral damage, other times watching uh, kind of from the the sidelines as people get wiped out as a as an industry, as a society, you know, like we deserve better than this. And I think we're continuously putting these figureheads up on a pedestal and it has to stop. This is the prime, I guess, objection that came against the traditional, and still does to this day, traditional, insidious, quote-unquote, like corrupt, quote-unquote, traditional banking industry. And this is why crypto's here. It turns out, you know, it's it's the same story. And I I will say, you know, these influential figureheads, they, they exist in other industries. But as I was alluding to with the financial side of things, outside of maybe like Elon's tweets, they don't quite have the power to actually move markets. And it just isn't the case in crypto. 
In fact, if you look at the majority of all of the major casualties in 2022 so far, they've been run by an outspoken, highly influential figurehead. And we've we've talked about these, and it's it's very challenging to see it time and again. Like if I go all the way back to the beginning of this year, you've got Daniela Sesta, aka Danny Sesta, right? It's like one-time leader of you know the so-called Frog Nation. They always have these like groupy names like cult names basically right and you know he was found to have knowingly allowed michael petron aka sifu a convicted criminal and co-founder of the quadriga um scam exchange he let michael petron manage a near billion dollar treasury of the wonderland DeFi protocol knowing that he admitted it all he admitted it in a tweet, he said, oh, I chose, I knew about his past. I chose to focus on the person I know today. It's like, no, that's not how this works. Mm-hmm. Sure. If someone's a convicted criminal and they've done the time, absolutely. No matter what the crime, they have served their time. I'm the opinion of that. However, with the crime that you have served, it kind of does exclude you from doing certain things. Like when you literally do an enormous wide-scale financial fraud in the crypto space. It probably writes you off running a billion-dollar treasury in DeFi. Um, <laughs> well, so- legally, it would. In, in a regulated circumstance, you would lose your license. You would be disbarred. What You know, you can think of the, the millions of, of, of sort of parallels to this. Exactly. If, if a- exactly. Yeah. And, that, and this is like a regulatory vacuum that that exists. We have Andre Cronier, you know, slightly different, but he convinced a large chunk of the industry at the start of this year, including many major protocols to move all their funds to the Phantom chain, boosted up, you know, the total value lock past $8 billion. He launched solidly this like supposedly revolutionary uh, new uh, exchange that kind of like combined game theory with like uh, tokenomics. That in itself accrued about 2.6 billion in, in value locked. Things didn't go well, and like about, I think something like seven days later, he he just announced, Oh, I'm quitting crypto. Vanished off the face of the earth. Everyone got burned. <laughs> it, it's like my, th- this is one that I definitely got caught up with. So maybe I'm a little bit biased and I'll call that out. But you know, <laughs> the <laughs> the the crazy thing here is he's recently announced he's coming back, and people are happy. They're happy. People are rejoicing. The world is literally, they've gone mad. And then you you get into just, oh, it's like the shortest of short memories. And then you just get into, you go from like stuff like this into, okay, like uh, really poor decision-making, sometimes really like gross mismanagement into things like Doquan, right? And it's hard to say whether what Doquan did with uh, Terra Luna was a straight up scam at best, it was a very poorly designed economic system that he grossly mismanaged, then went on to make fun of, quote unquote, poor people, Uh, regularly started fights on Twitter, retail got trashed, he showed no remorse, he's still out there kind of doing the media circuit, talking about how he's going to build the next big thing. And then you go from someone like Do Kwon into just straight up criminal activity in the likes of Suzu, Carl Davies from the now, you know, ashamed hedge fund, Three Arrows Capital, which they ran like a casino. They over leveraged, they made stupid bets, they lied to investors, resulted in a huge loss of fund, maximum pain for the industry, and only one beautiful super yacht to show for it at the end of the day. <laughs> um, which is probably the most disappointing part in all of this. It didn't this. even get delivered, Matt. It didn't get delivered. I'm devastated. At least we get to watch SBF's uh, Bahamanian um, resort get sold off at auction, you know. Uh, and and that leads us to SBF. And you know, we know the story. We know the story here. So now, where this kind of leaves us at a point, right? And you might be listening to this thinking, "Wow, this is damn." <laughs> This is pretty shitty. <laughs> um, yes, it is. But I think what's what I think about here is, you know, this is these are too many learning experiences. We need to think about like where do we go from here? I think first and foremost, we need to limit the reach and influence of these cult-like figureheads. There will be more, but their reach and their influence in particular 
needs to be limited. And I think this comes from, in my opinion, and despite the popular opinion of crypto Twitter, regulation. Now, regulation doesn't mean completely stifling innovation, like blocking down and deeming like DeFi as banned. Regulation is there to protect individuals. And the current vacuum that exists today is causing real issues. And it's one of the reasons that enables some of these bad actors to, like what we're talking about, get away with it. And I think what we're going to be dealt with is probably not the regulation that we 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 want, uh, but maybe what the industry kind of ends up deserving as a result of, of, of these bad actors. And then I think the only good thing that I look at from, I mean, it's, this is a stretch, but, you know, I think this has been a bit of a push for the likes of centralized exchanges to share things like proof of reserves. Um, I'll call out Kraken has been doing this for a long time. Others have been kind of doing this, but still in a way that isn't overly verifiable. Um, And just generally greater transparency into how funds are being secured and managed, liabilities, et cetera. I think we need that. And we're seeing a push again towards self-custody. But I do think the whole self-custody piece is kind of like, you know, when we go through those cycles about being pissed off about Apple's terms of service, but then we buy the next iPhone. So right. I, you know, I, I just don't know how it's going to change. But I do think these things need to need to be in place. Yeah, practically speaking, if we're going to reach mainstream adoption, you can't expect everybody to be using cold storage. They need yep. to to be able to feel safe on an exchange. Um, and I I think that you know a, a big component of this is that right now. The regulatory environment in the U.S. and also in the EU is pretty difficult to navigate. And by and large, the SEC has been engaging in regulation by enforcement and that they won't make the law clear. And then they'll prosecute an individual or an entity and that based off of their prosecution and conviction of them or finding of them or whatever, that becomes the new sort of precedent or guideline that the industry has to go by. I mean, let's not forget FTX was largely based in the Bahamas for a reason. And you can speculate as to what those reasons were, but I don't, I don't think you you need to. (laughs) Yeah. 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 A part of it is, is that it was nefarious. The other part is that it's difficult to, to navigate the, the U.S. regulatory environment. And then let's also not forget FTX U.S. also collapsed. So how did U.S. regulators get this wrong, right? Yeah. Really, if you think about what what has brought, the, I saw this uh, great tweet from Balaji uh, a couple days ago. He said, what caught Bankman Fried? Not the SEC or the CFTC. It was cryptography, self-custody, people withdrawing cryptocurrency because he could capture regulations, legally bribe politicians with donations, fake app balances via centralization, but he couldn't beat Bitcoin's verification. So I think that that's where some of the push for DeFi is. Realistically, that's th- th- all of that is true. It's also not going to solve the problem for your your average consumer, right? Yeah. So we have to we have to place scrutiny on the regulation that's going to be to be brought to the United States and the EU as a result of this. And it needs to be clear, transparent, and fair. This is something that Brian Armstrong from Coinbase, obviously a very heavily regulated exchange, fully based in the US, publicly traded, has been talking about for years now. Mm -hmm. And regulators have not been working with him. What have they done instead? They've worked with Sam Bankman-Fried to continue to push his bill, even after, even after the collapse of FTX, Senators, Elizabeth Warren, all of these people are still pushing his bill that that was like oh, yeah. a, a whole part of this whole thing, right? That's so I, I think that there's a lot of fear around, you know, like what what kind of regulation is this going to bring? And is this going to bring the the good type of regulation that that clarifies the regulatory environment and makes it possible for crypto exchanges to operate in a clear and transparent way? in the United States, or is it going to create more confusion and more unfair competition? Well, I think what I will say is that the most likely outcome here, which which I don't know whether it's going to be one of those two, I think it's going to be coming pretty quickly. And, you know, I think that with, there is a real danger here of a, a big knee-jerk reaction. And 
you know, you can understand it. You can understand why there would be that case. It's going to be a huge amount of pressure, not just from like, this is everywhere. I, you know, I spent a couple of days ago, like my, my whole day, obviously working in the crypto space, talking about this to to people. And then I was like, oh man, day's over. It's been pretty exhausting. I'm feeling a bit mentally drained from this whole like situation. I go in, uh, into my house, go into like the living room, sit down with my wife, turn on the TV, BBC News, FTX <laughs> is everywhere. I was like, Jesus Christ, this has hit the mainstream. Yeah, I was actually saying to someone the other day, you know, I went to um, I went to a dinner hosted by uh, General Catalyst, the the VC, and there was just like a bunch of people from like the regular web two world there, no one really from uh, web three crypto. And uh, as I'm like introducing myself and like letting them know that I'm, I'm in kind of the crypto space, people like responded to me as if like, I just told them that someone in my family had died and they're just like, Oh, are you <laughs> like, are you okay? Is, is, are you going to be all right? Like you're going to get through. I'm like, okay, it's okay. Like with, this has happened before. It's going to happen again. But yeah, there, there's a there's a period of healing. I think we've dug in quite a lot. We've uh, clearly voiced our opinions on the matter. Um, hopefully, next week we're going to have some more positive stuff to to talk about. Maybe the path forward. I'm sure there's going to be more revelations coming. What I will also say is we've also got a few interesting uh, interview episodes coming up that are going to be. Slightly different. Uh, we're going to be talking to uh, one of the team over at Opolis that is about like the future of work and uh, how they're kind of building towards that. We're going to be chatting to the team at Token Tracks and thinking, uh, zooming in on like where the music uh, blockchain space goes goes from here. So a lot of good stuff outside of just the doom and gloom of our weekly roundups. But as always, Austin, it's been a pleasure. And until next week, I'll uh, I'll, I'll speak to you soon to a more positive episode next week, Matt. We'll see you then. The contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.